0: Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I'm your host James DePietro. This is a show that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I have a very special guest, the Mayor of Pasadena, Terry Tornick. Mayor Tornick was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, but following his service in the army, found his way into urban planning. This interest eventually led him across the country to serve as Pasadena's Planning Director. At a time when the city established the redevelopment plan for Old Pasadena. After his time in the planning department, Mayor Tornick got involved in commercial real estate development historic preservation and management. Several noteworthy buildings in Old Pasadena, including the Dodsworth Building, which is where the Cheesecake Factory is now, were either repositioned or managed by him. I was first introduced to Terry when he represented my own city council district, District 7, from 2009 to 2015, when he was elected mayor. I have always found him to be an honest advocate and a rather unconventional elected official. As we approach the election and the city continues to grapple with such issues as police reform, housing, and COVID 19, I wanted to have Terry on the podcast to discuss his history in Pasadena, his thoughts on some of the challenges we are facing, and why he remains optimistic about the future. On the show. uh, Because um, with no further delay, my conversation with Mayor Terry Tornick. Mayor Tornick, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thank you. Happy to be here, James. Uh, I want to get this out of the way that you are my first guest. So I very much appreciate you coming on and spending the time with us. Well, I'm delighted. I like I like to help launch new things. Um, so on the day that we're recording this, it's Tuesday, and we're exactly two weeks away from the election. So with all that, how are you holding up?
1: Uh, it'd probably be better served asking my wife that question. but uh, that's, that's fair. I, you know, most days I'm holding up pretty well. I have an occasional brief meltdown, but but uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of tension associated with it, honestly. But um, for the most part, I'm thriving. I'm you know all of this stuff is self induced, so I can't uh, I can't blame anybody else but me. <laughs> that's that's very
0: true. You pride yourself always on kind of door to door campaigning, and I remember you telling a story about how I think uh, either a year or a year and a half out from an election, you'd start knocking on doors and introducing yourself. You know, is, that, is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly correct. So, you know, with COVID, it's totally upended the style of campaigning. So how has this kind of changed how you interact with the public? It's been uh, really frustrating
1: for me, and it's, it's undermined one of the key components of my strategy. Um, I knew that I was going to be dramatically outspent in this election, but I, I felt that because there was such a big gap between March and November, between the first round and the, uh, and the election, uh, November 3rd, that I could make use of that big block of time to walk the whole city again. And um, I was kind of counting on that. And so that that got shot so I've had to try to improvise like we've all been doing with everything we do. And I've had to substitute other methods to try to reach voters. Um, and you know, on November 3rd, we'll find out how successful that's been, but but it's been, it has been frustrating. I really thrive on the, um, on the direct contact with voters, the front porch conversations, Mm. and that's been thwarted. Um, so, uh, I've changed the whole style of campaign, and frankly, I, I've had to engage the help of a, lot of a lot more people than I ever have before. We've had to develop a real ground game uh, with volunteers, lots of volunteers, and it's been, been a new experience for me. I've been more of a lone ranger in my earlier campaigning, not asking people to do much, um, and this time it's a, it's a whole different ballgame. And I, I have to say, I've, I've really enjoyed the experience in spite of the frustration of not being able to uh, to do the door-to-door business
0: hmm. it's really interesting To get started I thought that we would talk a little bit about your background and how you got involved in planning and also politics um, you know we've known each other for a couple of years but you know I, I know your resume and I think a lot of people do but you know it doesn't really give us the full picture of kind of where you came from kind of what inspired you what influenced you you know I know that you earned a degree from Princeton and followed up with a master's in urban planning from Columbia um, so with that, uh, why did you get into urban planning in the first place? And who were your early mentors or influencers in your career?
1: Well, I did, I did go to Princeton, uh, as an undergraduate and Princeton prides itself in, um, recruiting people for public service. I mean, it's the, mm. the, the, old, uh, motto was Princeton in the nation's service. Now I think they've modified it to Princeton in the world service <laughs> because they've got so many international, uh, well, that, makes,
0: that makes sense.
1: But, um, so I, the, the, uh, the School of Public and International Affairs, where, which was my major, used to be called the Woodrow Wilson School. But now that he's not in favor, it's just called the Princeton School of Public <laughs> and International Affairs. Um, the, the specialty, you know, my concentration was, was in urban, urban affairs and politics. And mm-hmm. uh, at Princeton, you, you have to write an undergraduate thesis. And I did mine on, on the political arm of the Teamster Union. Which, is, which was called then and still is now called DRIVE, D-R-I-V-E. Oh, interesting. And, and so I became exposed to local campaigning efforts. I, I had a grant to travel around the country and, and observe uh, the Teamsters organization and what it was doing and uh, was very much interested in that. And then when I graduated, I, I went into the Army, and when I, when I came out of the Army, I was uncertain about my career choice, but I, I was very much interested in government. And so I, uh, I went to a job fair for veterans, uh, in Washington and, um, <laughs> there were, there were three departments that were of great interest to me. Uh, the, the uh, labor relations board, because of my exposure to the Teamsters, the, um, the CIA and, uh, and that was in part because of my international exposure and the fact that I was a special forces in the army. And then um, uh, HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, mm-hmm. they had an intern program and they had a, um, a slot in their New York regional office uh, where we were living. And my wife was a school teacher uh, in New York. And so I said, wow, this is sort of made to order. So I, I signed up for that. And I went through their internship program. And what I learned from that is that I, I lacked some um, professional skills that I thought would be really useful. And so I hmm. applied to and was accepted at Columbia, got a free ride at, at Columbia and um, in the urban planning program. And, and uh, uh, it really confirmed my interest in all things urban. <laughs> and, uh, and
0: so that was the career choice that
1: I made um, way back then.
0: Well, coming from Brooklyn, I mean, there's a long list of uh, very influential politicians, both in New York area, but also in New England. Were there any ones that kind of served as kind of a, a guidepost for you that you kind of looked up to or that you kind of influenced kind of how you approach things?
1: Well, the the, um, the most noteworthy figures that I was aware of um, that made the biggest impression was actually Jane Jacobs, Mm-hmm. Um, the death and life of american great American cities as yes. sort of an urban planning influence, mm-hmm. and her uh, dueling with Robert Moses, who was a gigantic figure in New York planning history um, and uh, then beyond that the, the 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 figure that i was most uh, and, and, and certainly and I had some contact when I was in high school with governor rockefeller Nelson Rockefeller. Mm who was the epitome of a progressive Republican. We don't know what that means anymore, but, but, uh, things have changed a little bit. Yeah. Way back when, uh, we had people like Nelson Rockefeller and Jacob Javits, who was a, a Senator in New York and Ed Brooke, we then moved to Massachusetts. Ed Brooke was the, was the Senator from Massachusetts. These were progressive Republicans that were very urban oriented. Um, and then the other guy that made a major impression on me in my younger life was Michael Dukakis. He was governor Mm. of Massachusetts when we moved up there in 1980, let's see, no, 1972. Okay. Um, we moved to Massachusetts from New York in 1971. And, um, because I was planning director in Springfield, Massachusetts, I got to interact with Ed Brooke and with, uh, with, um, Michael Dukakis, and I was very much impressed with Governor Dukakis and and what he represented so there were I had exposure at at, uh, at an early stage uh, to a number of um, sort of luminaries in planning and in politics from both political parties
0: you know you, you moved your family from Springfield when you mentioned to mention that uh, to Pasadena pursuits to the uh, the plane director's position in the early 1980s you know when you came to California, you know, what were your first impressions of California and also Pasadena.
1: Well, you know it's interesting. My my wife made the decision to move to California. She makes most of the important life decisions for our family. <laughs> uh, truth be known, and and um, she had her her sister had moved out here, and her parents were living out here, and okay. she was uh, not thrilled with with uh, with Springfield, and so she was looking for greener pastures, and she said we should move to California. My family was in Florida, but there was no chance of me convincing her to move down there. So, uh, I began to look for work in California and, um, we actually had a number of of really interesting job opportunities, uh, in California, both in Northern California and elsewhere in Southern California. But when I came to Springfield, uh, to Springfield, when I came from Springfield to Pasadena for a visit, um, I immediately felt uh, captivated by the place because Mm. unlike some of the other, some of the other areas in particularly in Southern California that I was interviewing in, uh, Pasadena felt like home. I mean, Pasadena had a sense of place. It had neighborhoods that, that did not feel alien to me. Uh, It had a sense of history Uh, the reason I was being recruited was because of my experience in historic preservation and the, the then controversial decision surrounding old Pasadena, not to scrape it, but to try to rehabilitate it. Hmm. And so I said, this is, this is made to order. I mean, the, uh, um, this is, this will be a perfect environment for my family. It does not feel like some other planet like orange County does. Um, and, uh, I was fortunate to to uh, land the job as planning director in, in Pasadena in 1982. Wow, well, and the rest is history. Well, history is emerging.
0: Th- that's true. Um, you know, Pasadena is known as a very a very distinct city. has a very distinct culture. Very unique, like you said, very different than Orange County or, or even in Glendale, Burbank. I'm curious to see kind of what your thoughts are on what the Pasadena way was back when you joined the city back in the early 1980s? And then how do you think that's evolved? And, and what is the Pasadena way now?
1: You know, I think that's really a wonderful uh, um, observation or question. I, the Pasadena way uh, means lots of different things to lots of different people. It does. It really, it's, it's almost amusing. Um, Pasadena is, is a really interesting place and a wonderful place Because it's so diverse, it's diverse. uh, You know, its diversity manifests itself in in a bunch of different ways. The, you know, the the demographics of its population, the uh, uh, income characteristics, Mm -hmm. uh, the um, the source of you know where people have come from, uh, the building types. You know, the in almost every way, Pasadena is is not a homogeneous community, and so when you talk about the pasadena way i think it means very different things to very different people it's a and and you know the prism that they view it that they view the city through is very different to a mm. to a, a a a teenager who's a person of color in northwest pasadena uh, pasadena looks very different than a an octogenarian who lives in madison heights you know i mean it's right. it, um, the way the city presents itself its opportunities and its challenges are very different. And that means that, um, governance, uh, and making is really challenging because you don't have a hom- homogeneous population with a, with a sort of a monolithic point of view. You've got right. this whole range of points of view and you've experienced that. And, you know, as you've served on commissions in Pasadena and lived in Pasadena, that's, that's, um, challenging and it's even upsetting to some people because they have a kind of an, a, 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 what I would think is a faux nostalgic view of what Pasadena used to mean mm-hmm. and a fear of change in terms of what Pasadena might be evolving into. And I would argue that change has always been here, uh, but what's changing is the, or, or the the perception that people have is that their experience they're now being exposed to things that they hadn't really thought about or known about before. Hmm. That's demonstrated in a whole bunch of ways, uh, you know, as, as I'm sure, you know,
0: what do you think has changed since you were first elected, you know, back in 2009, both um, positives and, and negatives that should be addressed?
1: Well, I think, I think Pasadena has managed to avoid some of the worst Uh, in terms of the kind of polarization that we've seen nationally. Um, You know, this idea that if someone doesn't agree with you, that uh, he or she is the devil incarnate, you know, it's not, it's not just a matter of holding a different point of view, but obviously if, if, if they don't agree with me, they're inherently evil and they're right right to get, I mean, that, that's, that's what we're observing. I, I mean, I know it's an oversimplification, but I mean, I think there's a very strong, element of that in, in Washington, D.C., that, doesn't, that hasn't manifested itself very strongly in Pasadena. There's some of it, and I've experienced it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, and, you know, even the central areas of, of um, debate and discussion uh, are not radically new. I mean, when I came to Pasadena 40 years ago, there was a, a, a raging debate about development, you know, what it should look like, how much there should be uh, what was appropriate to sustain the same debate that's going on now. I was going to say that things haven't changed a whole lot. In no, that, no. that, that will all, and you know, it's, I view that as a healthy thing. I that's mean, I think very that true. the, I think that the, that ongoing discussion, the, the fact that it's, it, there are some unique aspects to Pasadena and the fact that people are litigating the intent of the Bennett plan in the civic center from 1923 uh, is symptomatic of how unique Pasadena is. Uh, the fact that we've had an active planning process in Pasadena that goes back a hundred years is really a, a, a testament to uh, to what's made this city a fabulous place. And the fact that we still continue, you know, that we continue to disagree, I think, is also a, a, a testimonial because it means that people care. I mean, they're vested yes. in in uh, in what they believe in. They're concerned about the quality of life in their community Um, to a greater or a lesser extent. They, you know, they're fearful about losing what they find to be most charming in the city. And so they're very protective. Um, All of that I think is great. And, and um, I've, I've tried to kind of focus on what the, what the realities are, you know, what the Mm -hmm. fact-based realities are of, of um, which, which differ from, People's perceptions sometimes right. uh, of what growth and change have meant in Pasadena, and uh, it's become a kind of a subtext in this campaign. I don't know that it's the dominant issue, but it's a,
0: it's an issue. Uh, I welcome it, but it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Wanting to move into some of the issues that I think are on the tops of a lot of people's minds, which are you know uh, the situation with small businesses. You know, I think you and I would agree that you know, there, there've always been too many empty storefronts in the city, but now with the onset of COVID, you know, we've seen a lot of retail, especially retail and restaurant businesses close. Some of them probably not returning. And we're faced with the uncertainty that um, office demand might be different going forward. Um, and we're seeing that somewhat in, in my own business, and I'm sure you've heard it from a lot of different landlords and, and managers. And so I was curious to just kind of see what, you think the city can do from a policy standpoint to help businesses reopen
1: well i mean the the economic impact of this pandemic um is going to be far reaching and um and is going to take a while uh, to, to work itself out i mean i i'm i'm very worried about the survival of a lot of small businesses, um, of a variety of kinds. And I think one of the really interesting aspects of this pandemic has been not that it's so much, um, created whole new areas of, of challenge, but I Mm -hmm. think what it's done is it's really magnified existing trends that were already evolving and problematic. I mean, we, um, We always knew that we had a a food security challenge in Pasadena, that there were certain families uh, that were not, you know, not adequately fed. Uh, And, you know, that's been mitigated through the school lunch programs and through the food banks and a variety of things that are both, that are mostly provided by uh, nonprofits in Pasadena rather Mm -hmm. than by government. Right. But the pandemic accelerated that and intensified it. And so the city had to get more aggressively involved in that. The same kind of thing uh, is true with regard, for example, to retail. Retail, uh, and, and you know this probably better than I do, I mean, bricks and mortar retail has been besieged uh, for a long time. That's, it has. that's not a new event. <laughs> Online shopping and, and the way people uh, conduct themselves and the kinds of places they shop have really posed a tremendous challenge for uh for brick and mortar retailers you know for years but now uh with the advent of the pandemic and people there there are a lot of people particularly older people who never shopped online who are now you know online shopping experts um some of them won't go back to their old style uh, shopping habits Mm -hmm. um or if they do go back they won't go back as much they'll continue Mm -hmm. to buy some stuff online So the, so the retail, you know, Pasadena happily, uh, has never really been dependent on bricks and mortar retail, Mm. unlike Glendale and, and, you know, Arcadia, uh, with their gigantic, uh, shopping malls, you know, Pasadena has been more of a boutique retail, um, environment. Uh, and, and my belief is that, that, that they will recover, uh, quicker, uh, but still at a reduced level. So we're going to be confronted with, with, as you pointed out, James, you know, more storefronts, more vacant storefronts than we've had before. The restaurant issue, I mean, we had more than 600 restaurants when the pandemic hit. The, the national forecast is that up to a third of, of restaurants will close. I don't know that that's the number for Pasadena, but clearly uh, some will close. But eventually they'll be replaced and I think they'll reopen. Uh, so I think that's more of a, a, a short or a midterm problem. The office condition is more interesting in a lot of ways. Offices are gonna change, they they were changing. They were evolving from, you know, a model where everybody uh, coveted a, a private office, uh, you know, a corner office, ideally. Uh, and then it was evolving into a more open plan situation and the WeWorks, you know, and those kinds of uh, configurations. Mm-hmm. Now those open plan configurations may not be favored. Um, right. But what's so interesting is, you know, I've been sort of speculating about this myself. You might know more than I do, but it seems to me that before what was happening is that the density of people per square foot in the offices was really escalating. People were packing more people into the same square footage. um, And so that was better for the tenant, not so good for the landlord. Now it seems to me that's going to be reversed. Um, and people are going to try to thin the density, and are thinning the density because more people will be working from home. So you'll have fewer people per square foot, mm-hmm. which means that even if there is some reduction in office demand overall, it may net out. I mean, I I don't know. I you know I, I really don't know what um, how that's going to play, and we may not know for a couple of years. But I but I think that from my perspective as a, as mayor. Uh, what we have to do is make sure that we can accommodate what businesses need to thrive, uh, so when it comes to letting restaurants occupy street fronts and and uh, have seating in their parking lots, you know obviously we will continue to accommodate that when it comes to um, accommodating office owners in terms of of uh, expediting. Uh, build outs for tenant improvements. If they have to change the configuration of the space, we need to accommodate that. On a, on a bigger scale, we need to be looking at our zoning regulations in terms of what we permit on the first floor of buildings. Uh, while it would be nice to have retail, if the retail demand is so weak that nobody can fill their first floor spaces uh, with the kind of uses that we currently permit, we need to change them. Mm-hmm. I mean, so there are... And we've been talking about that. And and the truth is we were talking about that before the pandemic because of the weakening uh, retail market so that, um, you know, all of these things are dynamic and they change over time. And again, I don't think COVID, uh, th- this experience is sort of revolutionary. I think it's just accelerated, uh, and accentuated some trends that were already in place and, uh, Government's job is to accommodate uh, businesses because they're the ones that provide the jobs and the taxes. Uh, so Pasadena has got to continue to try to be um, cooperative with businesses. Meet we've been having ongoing meetings with different business sectors because you know a, a, a clothing retailer is a different animal than a restaurant is a different animal than a you know a, a, an office manager. So it's not helpful particularly to lump everybody together in these big meetings, but sector by sector, we need to understand what we can do to assist uh, the particular needs of any one group. We're trying to follow follow best practices from around the country. um, And our staff is working hard trying to figure out what we need to do to modify our regulations, both in terms of of, uh, land use regulations and other regulations we may have to allow businesses to uh, recover.
0: No, that's a very good point. You you mentioned the kind of the bulb outs and allowing restaurants to use some of their parking spaces. And I think that's a good transition to uh, kind of transportation. I'm sure you and I could talk about transportation uh, for hours uh, because you've been very involved with transportation issues all over the city. Do you think that, you know, the kind of the parklet model is here to stay? Do you think that there is, because of this opening due to COVID, that the resistance to the parklets has eroded some? I don't know. And know it's kind of a, it's a very broad question, but you know, I was very hesitant when a lot of the advocates for their parklets were proposing what they were thinking about doing on, on Colorado, especially in front of Romans and, and the arcade. And, but you know, you drive down Colorado, and, yeah, it's, it's different, but somehow it works. And the restaurants and the communities have made them work, which is pretty remarkable that this has been done in, in such a compressed amount of time. So it would be interesting to see you know, if, if we view this as something that we can make more permanent or if it's just kind of a temporary accommodation.
1: Well, it's, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I hate to sort of say I told you so. I mean, I was a big advocate <laughs> for the parklets. I really believe that um that they could work they should work and they would be beneficial um and people were resistant and hesitant and the original proposal may have been too aggressive i don't know but we couldn't achieve my position was that we were not going to impose this from city hall that the um the the property owners and the merchants the businesses need to needed to take the initiative and and determine whether or not it could happen and because there was such a kind of a split decision on that, um, you know, it didn't move forward, and I was very disappointed. I was advocating for the for the parklets in the Playhouse Village, or was then the Playhouse District, for a long time, um, and supported the idea. I think that the final results are not in. I mean, I think it is working That's pretty right. well. We've got we have a reduced traffic environment, so it's a little bit. Distorted perhaps. Colorado Boulevard was never a big traffic volume street.
0: Right. And that's something people, that people don't realize. I mean, that that was the
1: thing that infuriated me. It was right. it was, you know, people from East Pasadena were weighing in on how if we if we reduced a lane on Colorado Boulevard going through the Playhouse District, that it was going to disrupt their worlds. And right. um, the it, it frustrated me because Colorado Boulevard was not necessarily the street that was critical to move if you were going cross town. I mean, there are better streets to make cross town trips. Um, and the traffic volumes on Colorado and it's, and it's existing width uh, really didn't match up. Um, it, it's not a big volume street. Union is a much better um, uh, anyway, without getting into the details, it, it always infuriated me, but I, but I felt that it was not appropriate to sort of, um, coerce people into into trying this uh, so it really made me smile uh when when people embrace this during the crisis i don't know um whether it's a, a you know a permanent arrangement or not uh it'll t- it'll take a little while to sort that through and we'll have to wait for more uh normal traffic patterns to reestablish in order to judgment you know to to make it you know to make a a final judgment. One of the things that I had been recommending earlier on is that we do it on a kind of a, on a test basis with paint, you know, I mean, and, and, uh, in any event, uh, that's one of the small silver linings in this whole COVID mess is that it's gotten people, it's forced people to be somewhat more innovative and be willing to experiment. And I think that there will be lessons learned from, from this epidemic. I mean, there will be, an, there will be improvements that we make permanent that were introduced on sort of on an emergency basis. And it's just not just physical changes like, like a uh, uh, Colorado Boulevard, um, but procedural changes, the way we conduct our business, they're going to be, and that goes back to your discussion about office space, the way people conduct their business is, is going to be very different. And that's why, uh, you know the airlines are going to suffer for for longer than most other uh, industries uh, mm-hmm. because and potentially our convention center. Right. Um, I, I think that there are certain meetings that were conducted and and uh, in person activities that were done. Uh, people have now grown accustomed to these electronic platforms and recognize that maybe they don't have to drag themselves halfway across the country to have a meeting and. And uh, maybe, uh, you know, a, a Zoom format is adequate to get the, the board of directors together rather than an in-person activity. But uh, some of these things are going to take a while to shake out. They,
0: they will. And like, I think your approach was it has to come from the ground up. And I think what, what I'm hearing from you now is it, that's still the case, that if the community wants the parklets or something similar to that, then it really needs to come from. The business owners, it needs to come from the landlords, it needs to come from the restaurants and the and their customers, you know, calling for this as opposed to, you know, government led initiative. And I, I think, think that's, that's right. There's a lot of wisdom to that.
1: Well, um, I think that government government, you know, is not as nimble as the or or imaginative as a rule. I mean, I think we do. There is a role, and the reason that we were, you know, talking about the parklets was that the The transportation department had done the research. Uh, They had uh, learned the the sort of best practices around the country and around the world and offered the information to the public uh, for the public to decide whether they wanted to take a bite of that apple. And uh, where we were pre-COVID was that the the property owners and the merchants were not ready uh, to try that experiment. They were fearful about it. And so the city backed off. Right. Uh, but we do have a role, a catalytic role in terms of making suggestions about how things could be done and, and what was done elsewhere. But I agree. I don't think we should impose these things on on, uh, on the people.
0: One of the things that it seems like was on the top of everyone's mind before this happened, but has been um, kind of heightened because of it is housing insecurity. We're, we're still underperforming in terms of building affordable housing for people that just can't keep up with the pricing that we're continuing to see, even during a pandemic. You've been hesitant about uh, rent control and your thoughts on, on gentrification, that the solution is more of a supply-driven solution, that, we, that the, the answer lies in, in building more. Can you talk a little bit of, kind of, about your kind of view of that and where you see Pasadena going to address this need for affordable housing in the community?
1: Well, we, we can't build our way out of it. I mean, we can't possibly build enough units to no. correct the uh, supply imbalance because it's a regional and really a statewide uh, problem. I mean, for, for almost a decade, the state of California had a sort of a demonstra- demonstrable demand for something on the order, I think, of 180,000 units a year and was building 80,000. So you can't, I mean, you can't short supply buy a hundred thousand or more units a year and not expect there to be a, a crunch. Right. Um, and I think that Pasadena has done well in terms of, of meeting market demand, um, on market rate housing, we can never meet the affordable demand. It's, it's impossible. Uh, there will always be a, a greater demand for, uh, for less expensive housing than we can possibly supply. So when you're confronted with that reality, uh, it's like all these other sort of intractable problems, you either throw up your hands and say, look, I can't deal with it, I, you know, and walk away, or you, you do what you can, you sort of chip away at it. And Pasadena Pasadena uh, has made some important strides in terms of chipping away at it and trying to provide affordable housing. So we have our inclusionary housing requirement that any new project, more than 10 units, has to supply 20% of the units uh in the affordable category and we have built hundreds and hundreds of units as a result of that we have uh, we've taken aggressive steps in terms of getting housing built on city-owned land the, the council yesterday approved uh, a ne- negotiating agreement for 112 affordable units across from city hall on a city-owned piece um across from the ywca mm-hmm. uh we are we act, we put cash in projects, we, we've decided to invest $2 million in the Salvation Army's new project on Mentor uh, and Walnut, um, which is more than 60 units of of housing for homeless people. So, I mean, we can actively and and through regulation uh, chip away at this affordable housing uh, demand. Uh, The reason I don't supply, I don't support rent control is because I've studied the subject uh, very uh, intensively. And of course I grew up as you pointed out in New York and lived the first 18 years of my life in a rent control apartment. Hmm. And rent control uh, discourages uh, new supply uh, because investors are not anxious to see their their um, opportunities for, for profit limited. And it also discourages investment in existing supply and accelerates deterioration. I've watched whole neighborhoods wiped out, um, not entirely because of rent control, but I, because I think rent control was a contributing factor. And I think that rent control creates distortions, amazing distortions in the market, uh, key money that's paid to superintendents. I mean, I, I can go on and on about rent control. So rent control is one of those magic bullets that sounds viable um particularly when you're in a desperate situation and you're worried about how you're going to make rent but but just doesn't stand up to, to scrutiny and in fact i would argue makes the problem worse in the hmm. long term hmm. so pasadena will continue as 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 long as i'm involved uh, will continue to be active in in promoting affordable housing we've got initiatives now i've been meeting with the churches to talk about using their land for Uh, affordable housing opportunities, and even workforce housing for their teachers. Uh, I've been uh, uh, focusing on city-owned land opportunities where we have them. Uh, I've been meeting with the school district to talk about their surplus, you know, the churches, the school district, the city-owned parcels. All of those represent opportunities, I think. Uh, The motel conversion proposal, I mean, we're trying to do everything we can, recognizing that we, you know, we can never meet the complete demand. But that doesn't mean it's not worth trying and, and providing whatever number of hundreds or thousands of units that we can over time.
0: Oh, thank you for that. You mentioned that you got the action that the city council took on the affordable housing issue yesterday. You know, part of the agenda was talking about the historic uh, police reform that was enacted by the, the council. And I wanted to get your sense of how you think the process is going in terms of that reform initiative. Back in August, I believe, you, know, you told a group of activists that, that the police oversight package that, w- that eventually went on to pass you know, didn't address all of their concerns, but it was, in fact, a historic um, piece of policy for the city. What have been the lessons in this process? You know, what do you think that um, do you think this is a first chapter in, in a long story of, of, of effective oversight?
1: I think it is a chapter. It's not the first chapter, um, right? Yeah, it's, I should have been yeah, a number of chapters already. But yes, but it is it is part of. It. You're exactly right. It's it's part of a process. Um, this is not the end of the game. Um, it's the sort of the end of the beginning of the game. Um, and I think that that uh, uh, it, it is significant progress. Last last night uh, we got a little bit bogged down. Um, I you know John Kennedy and I have taken significant blows in terms of having been too imperious or, or uh, I don't know, non-inclusive in terms of how we tried to move this ball down the field. Um, And there may be some validity to that because we were trying to trade off um, process for time. I felt that it was absolutely imperative because of the intensity uh, and emotion stirred up by the killing um, in, in Minneapolis way back in May. Uh, and then of course the shooting in Pasadena that we not uh, conduct business as usual. And so that Pasadena way, that elusive Pasadena way that you referenced uh, earlier, I was accused of not having pursued the Pasadena way uh, in bringing about this uh, civilian oversight commission and I, I, I'm guilty of that. Um, that was intentional. Um, and it, the reason it was intentional is because I didn't think that the Pasadena Way of trying to find a blue ribbon panel, giving them a year or so to conduct meetings, uh, then you know, drafting alternatives and c- coming back to study commissions and sessions. I mean, the Pasadena Way, in this instance, would have taken a couple of years Right. And, and I didn't think I think the most we could spare and, and given the intensity and frustration in the in the in the black community uh, was months, not years. Right. And so uh, we didn't follow traditional um, processes in terms of, of making this happen. And I'm, I'm proud of that. I'm you know, I don't feel guilty about it. I feel proud of it. But, it, but it's gonna to continue to meet resistance and it's gonna to continue to meet skepticism on all sides. The reason I was pressing uh, for getting the commission appointed is because that process, the ability to have people identified who are trusted members of a community and uh, have them begin to focus serious attention on a consistent and ongoing basis on every aspect of policing in Pasadena from, you know, recruitment to training, to, uh, uh, discipline to, to, uh, policies, you know, all of that stuff, um, I believe will make a huge difference in terms of building that kind of, uh, real trust between the minority community and, and the police department. And, and frankly. Uh, I believe, will make policing more effective and safer for the officers. If there's an improved relationship between the officers and all of the people in Pasadena, um, everybody is going to benefit from that. And really, the police officers, I think, recognize that. They have not been resistant to these recommended changes. And they're the ones you know who are you know, very they're real stakeholders in this process right they're on the they front haven't lines, been, yeah. they haven't been dragging their feet or threatening to sue or you know anything of the kind because I think they recognize that like the body worn cameras, some of these innovations can work to their benefit as well um, and so i'm 'm very optimistic about it but but as you've indicated, this is just a chapter this is not mm. the end of the game and, and the way this looks Uh, two years from now and five years from now will be very different from the way we started uh, at this point.
0: Very interesting. Well, I know we're getting close on our time, so I have some final questions that we can kind of roll through. And you recently participated in a virtual debate, which you've done a lot of recently, Um, but this one was hosted by the NAACP and and two millennial groups. My question is that as the electorate gets older and we're seeing more Gen X and, and millennials getting involved in politics, what advice would you give younger people who are considering a path toward involvement in government and politics? Well, I
1: think that, um, you know, I, I've got granddaughters who are in their 20s. And so they keep me honest. Yes, I'm sure. In terms, in terms of um, rolling, not just rolling their eyes at me, but, but in terms of concrete suggestions. And, and they were really instrumental in terms of activating me on this police oversight issue, frankly. I, I went to hmm a demonstration in front of City Hall and address the crowd and my granddaughter, uh, one of my granddaughters was very harsh with me in terms of her evaluation of, of what I had to say. She didn't think it was really responsive to what what the crowd wanted to hear. Mm. And uh, I took that to heart um, because I, you know, I know she loves me and she has my best interests at heart. And I also know that she's 23 years old and she's really smart. Um, and so my response is that I think there is a uh, there is an impatience associated with youth, which is both a blessing and a curse, right? I mean, the, the yes. fact that you're not willing to say, "Okay, you know, this is a this is a big problem, going to take a long time." The fact that that younger people are less patient and less satisfied with being told that this discussion we just had about, you know, this is a chapter in a longer book, um, that's not a satisfactory response for young people typically. They want want to strip down the problem and resolve it now. And sometimes that's not realistic and not achievable. So one piece of advice has to, to at least say to young people that they need to be conscious of the fact that not everybody is prepared to move as fast as they are. And that at least in some instances, moving too hastily is not a good idea. Uh, that what you think you know, you, don't, you may not really know. Uh, and so sometimes it takes a while to kind of have some of those issues emerge and ring out the truth from what you, th- what you may think is obvious. So there is that kind of tension uh, between youth and impatience and, and, uh, and being older and wiser. You know, it's not—it's not as simple as that, obviously. But I think there there are those poles that you have to deal with. So, I think younger people who want to embark in a um, in a career or as volunteers in the in the public arena need to recognize that not everything is going to get done as quickly as they'd like. But if they're serious about it, they have to be willing to hang in. And that's uh, very true. They can still be impatient, but they have to be willing to sort of stay the course and not bail just because they feel it's not moving fast enough to suit their emotional needs.
0: There's one final question, since you mentioned your granddaughters, and it's amazing that they're already in their 20s. How do you think I feel? I know, I can't can't imagine. (laughs) But, um, you know, when when you think about your children and your grandchildren and their children, potentially, at a time when there's a lot of division in the country, at a time when it seems like, Elections are getting nastier and nastier, and we didn't really get into the politics, which we can have you on back again at some point. What kind of gives you hope about the future that your grandchildren are living in or that their children will live in?
1: Oh, I'm very optimistic about that. I mean, I you know, people talk about how tough things are and they and God, they sure are. Even without the pandemic, you know, it was not a not exactly a walk in the park for a lot of people. But I, you know, we talked about my early career days and when I came out of the army in 1968, um, the country looked like it was disintegrating. I mean, 1968 was a year in history, in my personal history, but in the nation's history that was just, was horrific. Um, Dr. King was, was murdered, Bobby Kennedy was shot. The uh, Democratic uh, Convention in Chicago was a shambles. Mm-hmm. Richard Nixon got elected. Uh, Vietnam was raging. Um, you know, t- troops, hundreds of thousands of troops are there. Thousands of people were dying. Uh, we had 100 cities that had riots. I mean, you know, it, it was scary. And um, it wasn't clear what the outcome was going to be for the country. Um, and so... You know, as, as bad as it is now, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to sort of rank things on the on the horrible scale.
0: No, but, <laughs> but uh, your but, point's you well know, taken though. That,
1: that was a pretty horrific time. And, you know, we clawed our way out of it and we got to better times and civil rights progress has been enormous. There's still a lot to be done, but there's a lot that's been accomplished. Anyway, I, I'm tremendously optimistic about the future and about the, the world that my grandchildren and their children will, um, inherit, uh, because I think that we're much better educated about things that matter. Mm -hmm. I think that the, the whole, um, the whole center of the conversation has shifted. For the most part, there isn't any question any longer about the need to, uh, uh, change our attitude toward the environment. Whereas in 1972 was when the, when the first uh, Clean Air Act was passed. I mean, it was a brand new sort of innovation. Um, and now the argument is over calibration. I mean, there are a few people that are still deniers, but they're not, you know, we can't take them too seriously. For the most part, society on an international level has concluded that we've, we've done terrible things to our environment and we need to take affirmative action to correct that. So we're on the right path. Again, we're not moving fast enough. And once in a while, you get somebody in the White House who wants to claw some things back and, and reimagine the coal industry. But for the most part, society has moved past that. And I think that's true in a lot of areas. I think that the, the um, learning tools we have available to us, the ability, I mean, I continue to marvel at the fact that when I have a question about something, um, I just reach into my pocket and take out my phone and I can get an answer. Right. I mean, you know, it's, it's stunning when we start, when we're having an argument about who is, a, you know, some trivial stuff, whether who was the star of a particular movie or what the biggest city in, in, uh, in, in Uzbekistan is. I mean, we don't have to struggle with that anymore. No. You just make a couple of, you know, you punch in a couple of keys and you get the answer and information is available to people now at a staggering scale and speed. And I, you know, I'm a great believer in the availability of information and the benefits of that in terms of making good decisions. And so I am, you know, I'm jealous. Uh, I'm not pessimistic about the world that we're leaving our grandchildren. I'm jealous of the fact that I won't be around long enough to see some of the things uh, that they're going to see. And I'm relentlessly optimistic about uh, what that world is going to look like.
0: Well, that's a great so answer. I, I, I'm, I'm delighted for my grandchildren. Well, that's great. And I think that's a, a perfect place to close the show. Thank you, Mayor Tornick, for being so generous with your time. Uh, you're always welcome to come back on. Thanks so much, James. I appreciate the opportunity. If anybody has any
1: questions about any of this stuff as it relates to city policy, they can send me an email and I'll answer them. Very good. Stay safe, everybody. And uh, get a flu shot.
0: Again, my special thanks to Mayor Tornick for coming on the show. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing so that you don't miss an episode. You can find the show on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, and several other platforms that I am frankly too old to even know exist. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show so that others can find it. I would love your comments, feedback, and suggestions as, let's be honest, we could all use some constructive criticism. You can reach me at James at the crown city Podcast.com and follow me on Instagram at crown city podcast until next time. Keep positive, stay safe and see you around town.